the British Superbike Championship is up for grabs this weekend in the Decider at Brands. But as you're about to hear, they've got quite the act to follow. Welcome to Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, welcome to episode 34 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. Looking ahead to this weekend as the Moto3 and BSB Championships could well be decided in the case of the British Superbikes, it will be decided. It is the decider at Brands Hatch as the showdown comes to a head. Either Leon Haslam, Shane Byrne or Josh Brooks will walk away as the 2017 British Superbike champion. We'll also look ahead to this weekend's action at Mategi as the triple header of flyaways in MotoGP get underway as the championships look set to be decided over in Asia. Moto3 is up for grabs this weekend as opportunity knocks for Joe and Mia. We'll also go over the big news as KTM finally confirmed their race riders for next season. Good news if you're a British fan. And we'll also tell you about all the big news uh, from last weekend as titles were decided uh, in Spain. Joining me this morning as we record this, it is just past 10 a.m. on Friday the 13th. Uh, insert spooky jingle here um on a race weekend or after a race weekend where there was absolutely no racing of note to talk about this is true commitment to the cause andre harrison <laughs> uh, yeah yeah um yeah how's, what's up guys um yeah we're doing some bike stuff today um <laughs> yeah um i don't know what exactly because um there wasn't any actual bike racing this past weekend no apart from all the free speedway fans that are going to hunt me down for saying there was no speedway this weekend when there was but uh yeah we we managed to fish an idea out of our asses on this one so uh enjoy this bonus episode yeah yeah bex is bex is in australia so she's probably not going to hear this so uh yeah that that's why we haven't really covered uh, the speedway we will mention see, it i see dark clouds forming in the distance mm. <laughs> yeah yeah they'll be rolling over phillip island in a, in a week's time um but uh but no the um <laughs> Yeah, we will cover the speedway. We will mention it um, because it did take place last weekend in Torren, but we will get to that in the news, which will be around the halfway point in this show. Um, places you can find us before we actually get on with this week's show and tell you what we've got planned for it. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport101 if you want to follow us on there. We're on Twitter, and you might have strong opinions on the uh, the show that we're about to have. You might have your own views on, uh, on what we've spoken about. Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101 on YouTube, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport101. Uh, our website is motorsport101.net where you can find back episodes of both of our shows and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially um, and you're not one of the plebs shout out to the doctor on twitter um, for that uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 where you will earn yourself early access to both this show and motorsport101 which this week hit episode 107 um, given what happened at Suzuka probably for the best that Dre wasn't a part of this one because uh, Ferrari's year-long quest to win the world championship finally came to fruition only problem is Dre they won the championship for Mercedes yay yay i mean hey <laughs> hey hey i'm going to save most of my mm. bits for an inevitable much requested video of me talking about this on the youtube account this weekend It'll probably be out by the time this show goes out. But um, to say the least, the fact that a car worth millions and millions of pounds was <laughs> essentially ruined by a 59-euro spark plug, essentially gifting Mercedes both championships, safe to say I wasn't best pleased. No. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, screw Ferrari. Uh, um, and my mental health for, for basically... 
um, teasing us for that for the last 16 rounds. I'm very grateful for this. Mm, yeah, um, I have to say... I have my full reaction to this, this weekend. Yeah, I have to say, I, uh, I I hadn't set my alarm to watch it live, because I, I think, like you, I had to go to work on Sunday morning, so it wasn't really a brilliant time to watch it, but I, uh, I sort of, I thought, right, I'll, I'll get up about an hour before I have to leave for work, and I can sort of watch the race before I go. Because um, I can sort of fast forward through the dull bits, which ended up being ninety five percent of it. Um, yeah. But uh, but I sort of woke up, checked Snapchat first, and saw two separate people on my story. I think you were one of them, basically saying, "Oh, for fuck's sake, Ferrari!" <laughs> so yeah, that, that was essentially me. Yeah. I was like, "All right, back to bed." Uh, I was like, "I think I know where this one's going." Um, so yeah, so yeah. Um, if you want to hear Dre's thoughts on that, um, probably like I said, by the time you are listening to this, it will be on our YouTube channel, youtubecom forward slash mudspot 101 um, If you want to hear King and RJ's extended uh, episode where they talk about that and all the other news of this week, um, episode one hundred and seven is up right now uh, on all of the good places where podcasts are released. So go ahead and listen to that uh, right now. Um, for us though, uh, here on Bite Live. What we decided to do with this weekend seeing the championship decider in the British Superbike Championship and indeed a championship potentially being decided in Moto3, we thought we'd go back down memory lane. One of our favourite shows that the two of us have ever recorded was our show back in our downforce run called MotoGP 250 uh, where we went back through MotoGP's archives to look at some of the favourite races from the first 250. So we're continuing on that vein with this weekend, picking out our top 10 title deciders um, across the uh, championships that we cover on this show um now understandably if any of you are slightly older listeners and wondering why we haven't mentioned some from the 70s give us a break neither of us were born then um but we have come up with a couple of notable mentions from the 90s starting with uh loris caparossi and tatsuya harada in argentina into the 250s in 1998 um a move which got loris caparossi the sack from aprilia uh, even though he'd won them the championship, Caparossi essentially torpedoing Harada into the final corner um, to um, do. You know, he did that. He obviously was watching Michael Schumacher at Jerez in Formula One a year prior. Um, but uh, yeah, essentially ran up the back of Harada into the final corner, knowing that. Well, I don't think he necessarily knew this as he went for the overtake, but knowing that if neither of them finished, or if Harada didn't finish, Caparossi would win the title. Um, Caparossi stayed on board, finished second in that race, and won the championship. But Aprilia decided to. Uh, not offer him a contract for the following year, which meant Capirossi had to ride a Honda in 250s the following season, even though he was the reigning champion. Incidentally, that race in Argentina in 98 250s was won by a young whippersnapper by the name of Valentino Rossi. Um, Whatever happened to him? Um, Incidentally, one other notable mention also comes from Argentina in the 125s a year later, where um, Azuma, Melandri and Altamora competed for the championships, and immediately Altamora ending up winning it. Now, this is a guy who to many of listeners um, who are slightly younger, will know Emilio Artemora as the man- manager of the Marquez brothers. Um, but believe it or not, he was actually a former Grand Prix world champion of his own. Um, and Altamora actually famous for being the guy that won the 125 championships in 1999 without winning a single race all year. Um, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, Melandri didn't score a point for the first three races. He took the Keenan Sofoglu route to championship success. Um, didn't score a point until round four, then went on a tear in the second half of the season. Azuma, who won pretty much everything in sight in the first half of the season, then took the Jensen Button Braun GP route to success and didn't win again. Um, Altamora, by didn't have been successful in finishing second and third every other week, ended up winning the championship by one point. Um, so um, there were some uh, interesting deciders back in the 1990s as well. 
But all the 10 that we've identified and picked um, come from the 21st century. And we're going to start in 2015 at number 10 um, and head to uh, Moto3. Because, of course, there were two title deciders on that day in Valencia. You might guess that the other one that day is also featuring in our countdown as well. Um, we'll get to that later on. Um, but we're starting in Moto3, Dre, and um, the showdown between Danny Kent and Miguel Oliveira. And really, the way this season played out, Particularly if you if you take this from sort of Saxon Ring onwards, or even from Silverstone onwards, back in August when Danny Kent won that rain-affected race, this was really a race or a season that had no right to even make it to a final round decider. Indeed, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, Kent I think, had something like a 70-80 point lead um, after that race at Silverstone, and then after that, Miguel Oliveira just pretty much just reeled him in with a string of ridiculous performances where he was just un- untouchable the second half of that Moto that Moto 3 season, where he just had this tremendous level of racecraft where he was always in the same place, uh, in the right place at the right time. And it worked out beautifully for him. Um, he was so, so fast in the second half of that season. So that, alongside Kent being rather conservative and having a string of mediocre performances, pretty much opened the door for Miguel to have an outside chance of winning it going into the final round at Valencia. Yeah, I mean, if uh, if either uh, Messrs. Haslam, Byrne, or Brooks are listening to this, um, this is not how you uh, control a championship, uh, a championship oh. decider um, from Danny Kent. Cause I, I guess one of the key moments from Danny Kent's point of view came on the last corner of Aragon, where he he high sided himself into oblivion when trying to finish. I think he tried to finish second in that race when third would uh. have done. Um, and I think it was really that moment, Trey, that kind of put the frighteners on him. Because I think it was that moment, that crash, which cost him a lot of points, which almost forced him into the sort of mindset of, I've got to be conservative here. I can't crash again. But in the end, he, he overdid it. He did overdid it, yeah. It was like I think he was almost taken out by his teammate, Hiroki Ono, at the time. And I think that completely spooked him. It was like, you know what? I'm just going to stick around at the back of this this pack. It's, it's, it's bound to be enough. Hmm. Um, and it was only just barely enough to, um, for Kent to win the title. But boy, like I was... I was watching that race live again. What the hell is he doing back mm. there? Like, like Kent, go for the throat for God's sake! Like, you're probably actually safer yes. to just yeah, to just go for it and try and get up the field as opposed to hanging around at the back. Because if there's an incident, or when you could, you could easily get collected in the back of that group. Like, don't like hanging around the back is not going to get you anywhere. And Miguel is probably going to be in the top two because he's he was pretty much ridiculous at that point in time. So. Yeah, I mean, Ken, yeah, he did just enough to get over the line. But, like, you have to question um, what what his thoughts were going into those last two or three rounds where he was just like, I'm just going to be completely conservative here and just, you know, have faith that Oliveira doesn't score enough points to chase me down in time. It's uh, ridiculous. But, yeah, because hey. Danny Ken went into this race needing only two points to win the championship. Um, and this um, was having had three separate opportunities in Japan, Australia, and Malaysia to clinch the championship there and then and fail to do right. so. Um, so it was his fourth and final chance to win it. Um, and yeah, he, he was riding around in that race with his teammate Hiroki Ono, who was um, understandably, given the way the race panned out, in his last race for Leopard. Because um, Ono started <laughs> overtaking him um, during the race and racing his teammate. And we're thinking... Hiroki, what are you doing? This is this is <laughs> your teammates trying to win a championship here. And Danny Kemp was just I think so frightened of getting involved in a race. He just stayed out of the group altogether and was riding around in twelfth place. 
Um, right. Just just cruising around, knowing that that was enough to win the championship because he only had to be in the top 14. Because, um, of course, he'd already botched the qualifying that weekend, hadn't he? He had to start way right. back down the field um, and come through to 14th. Um, and in the end, I think Danny Kent would probably tell us all that his, his approach was correct. Um, and you can't really argue because he won the championship but there was of course that ultimate pile up at the final corner where three riders were taken out including Danny Kent's teammate Efren Vasquez um, right. where Danny Kent would probably turn around and say well hey if I had got myself in the group that could quite easily have been me skittled out at the final corner and that would have been the championship gone it's easy to justify now that he's actually won the title mm. but like if he if he turns out if he doesn't win that title what the hell would he be explaining to people then mm. Yeah, because uh, Miguel Oliveira um, went on a tear, winning four of the last five races um, to win the championship. And actually, if you stretch it back further, because um, obviously I mentioned that Silverstone race uh, where Danny Kent won in wet conditions. Um, from that point onwards, Danny Kent did not finish in the top five again all year. Miguel Oliveira had four wins and two seconds in the six races that remained um, and wiped out a near 100-point lead to only six points by the time the season finished um, in Valencia. But Danny Kent, with that ninth place in the end um, in Valencia, clinching the Moto3 world title um, in what has, to this point, Dre, I suppose, been the peak of Danny Kent's career. Pretty much. Um, it's not going any better for him since, but... Uh... Hey, he'll always have that Moto3 World Championship to hang his hat on. Mm, yeah, because of course he's going to be at speed up next season in, uh, in Moto2. Um, having, of course, that year turned down a potential MotoGP seat um, at the Premac team to uh, to go up to Moto2 with his same Leopard team. And that worked out swimmingly for him, didn't it? Um, yep. To number nine in our rundown. And um, yeah, this is one that also went swimmingly if you are... From Yorkshire, um, because we're heading to Qatar in 2014 for the World Superbike title decider. Um, to this day, the last World Superbike Championship to head to the final race. Of course, last year it went to Qatar, but was decided in race one of the weekend uh, in favour of Jonathan Ray. Um, this one went all the way to the wire, Dre. And um, this will probably go down in World Superbike history as the one where team orders overrid everything. Yeah, pretty much. Um... On both sides. Both sides, really. Yeah, like we had team orders on one side, and we had, uh, you know, Laurie Spaz essentially uh, rolling over um, for for Tom Sykes, sort of, but uh, begrudgingly, um, to a lesser degree, at Magni Core. We saw it at Magni Core where, you know, Baz had parked his bike on the finish line, waiting for Tom Sykes to make a point. He was going to, okay, if I'm going to listen to team orders, I'm going to embarrass you while doing it, basically, <laughs> which. I can't really say I blame Bass for that, really. But, uh, you know, at the same time, we had, we had the front of the race, we had Marco Melandri and Magni Cor, who decided, I'm going to listen to team orders once. <laughs> the Marco Melandri way of doing things. Um, not quite by the book, so to speak. Mm. Um, in race one, he let Gintoli through and let Gintoli win. In race two, he won for himself, because that's what Marco Melandri does. <laughs> Nothing yeah. is straightforward with Marco Melandri. Yeah, but, was, uh, and, and in many ways, this championship was it has similarities to the number 10 in our list, the Moto3 Valencia 2015. Because again, it was a sort of title decider that crept up on us, because with three rounds of the season to go, after Laguna Seca, where Tom Sykes wins race two, I think we were all, because this was our very first season of Bike Live, and I think we were all pretty much of the opinion after Laguna that Sykes almost had it in the bag at that point. You'd think. But yeah, Gintoli had, had a very, very strong finish to the season on on that Aprilia. And next thing you know, after, after you know, Spaz had to, you know, give up a couple of higher spots to, to give Sykes some points back. But, like, the fact it had to go to team orders in the first place after Laguna Seca says a lot about how strong Ginter's finish was 
And yeah, it forced Kawasaki's hands so as we to try and protect the championship. Um, it's it was it was it was awkward to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it was awkward down to a uh, pretty much irreconcilable breakdown in the relationship between Tom Sykes and Lawrence Baz uh, at Kawasaki, which originated in Sepang that year, where um, Lawrence Baz took Tom Sykes out of the race down at the first corner um, in a race that was won in the end by. Uh, Marco Melandri on the Aprilia ahead of Gintoli. That was one of the races where uh, Sykes lost a truckload of points to his then, well, didn't realise at the time was his title rival, but he would become his title rival um, later in the season. Um, the two never really got on from that point onwards, Sykes and Baz. So um, as you'd understand, Baz wasn't really in a mood to help Tom Sykes uh, later in the season. As Dre mentioned, he did so at Magni Corps um, in race two of the weekend, sitting up and allowing um, Tom Sykes through to finish fourth um, uh-huh. in that second race of the weekend. Um, but as I say, once they got to Qatar, he was not in the mood to do so. Uh, Southern Gintoli winning race one with Baz beating Sykes to second uh, in that race, um, which um, led to Tom Sykes eventually calling his teammate childish and unprofessional, um, which put paid to any hopes of uh, Baz helping him out in race two. Um, Pretty much. As it happened, and, and to be fair, uh, this is one of the, the sort of, the, I think it's become a bit of a myth from that season that Loris Baz cost Tom Sykes the world championship. He didn't, um, because as it turns out, Tom Sykes could have still won the World Championship with second in the final race behind Sylvain Gintoli. Um, as it was, he finished third behind Jonathan Ray, who was at that point still on a Honda. Um, of course, that was his last race for Honda before he joined Kawasaki to continue to ruin Tom Sykes' life. <laughs> at that team um, just as it was starting to go downhill for him um, in late 2014. Um, but as much as the the breakdown between Sykes and Baz kind of overshadowed it, the way that season ended up panning out, I think we have to, Dre, give due credit to uh, your man Ginters because he, he kind of discovered a level that I don't think any of us really thought he had until late 2014. Indeed, I never would have thought Ginters would have had that in him, basically. I, I thought Malandri was going to be the guy that was going to be spearheading the charge for a pretty of that year. It turns out it was Ginters. Yeah, just, uh, just to go to Qatar with the championship on the line and pull out the weekend of his life to win the championship. Pretty much. Uh, yeah, like I, I didn't think that was possible, but uh, no, he, he, he did the thing and it was, it, it was quality. Um, again, I, I would never have thought that he would have had that in him to do that, but that, that was Ginters for you. It was an incredibly impressive um, second half of the season run. And, you know, props to Marco. He uh, he, he, he played his role in that too, um, you know, being a quote-unquote professional about it and, you know, give, you know, giving up at least a few points to help Ginters out in the long run. But, uh, yeah, it was all sorts of... Uh, Interesting things going on there, especially mm. with Kawasaki. Yeah, with Kawasaki, who uh, who wanted, yeah, in the end, Loris Baz would not ride for Kawasaki again, and to this point, has not ridden for Kawasaki <laughs> again in World Superbikes because he then headed to MotoGP following that. Um, Loris Baz has been linked in recent weeks with a move back to the World Superbike paddock for next year, but um, as you're going to hear later on when we get to the news, um, one of his likeliest sort of options for next year has now been taken up. Um, over at Red Bull Honda, so um, we'll, we'll tell you about that a little bit later on. But yeah, Loris Baz. I think in many ways, because he was the guy who, I'm trying to think of the right words to describe Loris Baz, because I certainly picked a few choice ones back then. Um, he he was very much the number two within his team at Kawasaki, and I don't think necessarily people thought Loris Baz had the level of riding in him that he has shown since then, because his reputation, not just in terms of his 
reputation as a team player, but his reputation as a world-class motorcycle rider who could compete at the highest level was in question around that time. But again, Loris Baz is a rider, Dre, who since that point has gone on to prove that he does belong with the very best in the world. It's one of those things where, like, his MotoGP run, albeit brief, has proven that you know, he is a quality rider and he's had many outstanding performances in there, especially in changeable conditions, where, you know, he has proven to be a rider of enormous cojones. And, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame that, you know, Baz was kind of painted to be the villain in this instance because, you know, he, he took Sykes out and, you know, he was... He was sometime ish with team orders, but I, I've mentioned being a Sebastian Vettel fan in the past. <laughs> like, you can't really dislike the concept of team orders and then dislike the guy who breaks them. You can't really have this both ways, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, Baz tried to play both ends against the middle, and it turned out badly for him. And it turned out even worse for Tom Sykes, even though it didn't directly cost him a title. Um, it wasn't a good look for Sykes. He basically had to rely on outside help to, 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 to try and win them a championship. It, mm. it was it was ugly for everyone involved in Kawasaki. We all saw the public tw- Twitter spat again. But I have to thank Tom Sykes for being so petty about the situation because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have gotten back into World Superbikes. Mm-hmm. Cheers, Tom. Yeah, <laughs> and it wouldn't have, given, it wouldn't have given us one of the most uh, fiery episodes of Bike Live we ever recorded back in 2014 <laughs> um, as uh, Bex and the oh, two of us uh, went to war about it. Um, but yeah, contrary to what you may believe from that year, um, it's funny how these sort of stories just become sort of mythical in a sense in that, you know, it's it's almost assumed that Baz screwed Sykes out of the world title back in 2014. Um, even if Sykes had been let through in race one in Qatar, he would have still had to finish second in the final race to win the championship, and he didn't. Um, he finished third. So um, Gintoni ended up winning that title by six points in the end, and uh, Sykes was only cost four, if you like, um, in that opening race um, in Qatar, um, where Salon Gintoni won the world championship. Um, now, into number eight in our list. This is also a World Superbike Championship decider. Um, and another one, Dre, that kind of crept up on us. And a championship decider that wasn't really looking like one, even as early as race one of that weekend. Because heading into the final round of 2012 um, at Magni Corps, Max Biaggi virtually had the championship in his pocket. And then seemed, right. and then in the wet conditions at Magni Corps, tried to find every conceivable way to lose it. That's the wet race for you. You never quite know what's going to happen, do you? And, um, yeah, you thought Biaggi would have had it sewn up by this point. But um, it wasn't quite as simple as that, bless him. Um, you know what wet races are like. They can be very unpredictable. And Max had all of a sudden left a very, very big door open for a certain uh, Kawasaki rider. Uh, after his race one retirement, <laughs> yeah, because this was the this season, 2012, was really where the the what we now know as the Kawasaki dynasty. This was where it really where it began, or where it start, where it started to begin, because um, Kawasaki literally in 2011 took their first win um, since um, <laughs> becoming the factory team they are now. Where Tom Sykes won a rain affected race at the Nurburgring, which was stopped halfway through because it was absolutely pissing it down, um, and they they called it early um, in many ways similar to what BSB did at Silverstone a few weeks ago um, and Sykes was declared the winner um, now into 2012 Tom Sykes was not really a championship contender at any stage that year he was sort of on the on the peripheral of it um, as Biaggi and Marco Malandri uh, battle for the title um, and it was really Biaggi's sort of um, sort of faffing about trying to clinch it late in the season he only had one podium in the final uh, five races of the year um, Max Biaggi, um, he kind of limped his way to the title, and Tom Sykes suddenly started catching him and chasing him down. 
Um, yeah. Marco Melandri also did not race in either race at Portimao because he was injured, uh, which really cost him any hope of the championship. And Max Biaggi went into that final race weekend at Magnicourt, 30 and a half points clear. Remember that half? It becomes important later. 30 yep. and a half points clear of Tom Sykes. And Tom Sykes would go on to make up 30 of those points in the two races at Magnicourt. Finishing third in race one as Biaggi in the wet conditions fell off and crashed, which meant that Tom Sykes needed to win the final race at Magnicourt and Biaggi had to finish in the top five um, to win the championship and Piaggi just about called it spot on. Finished in fifth position. Tom Sykes winning it, which was a surprise to many because Tom Sykes wasn't really a wet weather rider. Oh, he's not really known as one now, but his uh, his early wins really came in wet conditions. Um, he yeah. won that second race and in the end missed out on the championship by half a point. Um, and in the end, it was the, uh, the cancelled race or the shortened race at Monza earlier that year. Um, back when World Superbikes raced at Monza, if only they went back there, um, where the Pirelli tyres were falling apart in the uh, mixed conditions. Um, they called the race early and gave out half points. That was the race that Tom Sykes actually won, um, but was only given 12.5 points for it. Um, yeah. yeah, which uh, ultimately cost him the title that year. Um, but yeah, Mar- Max Biaggi was trying to sort of control it um, in Danny Kent fashion, I suppose, um, and made a pig's ear of it. And ended up winning the championship by half a point um, that season. Proved Dre that in any championship, half points are just bad news. Yeah, half points are terrible. They, they, they should be scrapped. They should be gotten rid of. Like I don't know why they exist. It's terrible. Uh, no, no, no. But in all seriousness, it's it was. It's one of those things where you like. I guess a championship feels like pity because it didn't run anything near a full race. So why give full points for it? I mm. get that. I get the logic behind it, but. Um, it can have a catastrophic effect on a championship. And this was one of those occasions because Sykes only getting half points for his win at Monza. Well, it cost him the championship, essentially. Hmm. Um, it's one of those things. It's It couldn't be helped on this one. And, you know, I wonder if Sykes is still mad about that one. Mm, Probably it's been, is. It's been, I don't think he's so much mad about that one. No, he's near half as mad as he is about 2014. Um, but in, in terms of 2012, yeah, that, that race at Monza ended up being cold after three laps. <laughs> that was, that was Why how did you even bother running it at that point? Then? Yeah, that was, yeah, they because the, the, the tire, I think it was, yeah, Pirelli from memory, Pirelli's tires, because it was a sort of drying track, and they obviously didn't have an intermediate tire back then. They only had the wets and the dries, um, and it was way too dry to run wet tires. But when they tried to run um, the dry tires, they were just, they weren't standing up to the long straights of Monza. I mean, incredibly, um, as amateurish as that sounds. Um, so what they ended up doing in the end was um, calling it after three laps and saying, right, we're going to uh, we're gonna hand out the half points here and just be done with this. Um, and um, because race one the uh, day before had already been cancelled because it was too wet to run. Um, so uh, in the end, we only got three laps of racing across the two days at Monza uh, back in 2012. And I don't think World Superbikes has been there since. Um, so, uh, yeah. Not the greatest of memories for World Superbikes of Monza, although I do still wish that they would go back there um, because I still remember the twenty. I still remember the twenty eleven races where uh, Eugene Laverty took his first couple of wins, and it was brilliant racing that day uh, around Monza. But it's amazing how the calendar has changed from back then, back in twenty twelve. Because uh, yeah, they uh, back that year they went to Monza, they went to Miller Motorsports Park in the United States, um, oh, yeah, yeah. and uh, and raced on the Monday there because they I think they raced on. Um, on Memorial Day that weekend, so um, the races took place on the Monday rather than the Sunday. Yeah. Um, doing that after MotoGP had deemed it cool a couple of years earlier when it rained in Qatar, um, and uh, they raced at Bruno um, that year. They raced at Moscow in Russia that year. 
uh, as well, and at the Nurburgring. Um, so um, Bruno, which incidentally might well be back on the World Superbike calendar next year if um, the planned round in Argentina uh, doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how World Superbikes has changed a lot since then, um, and also how many things have stayed the same, the likes of Sanks Melandri, Jonathan Ray, who was still slugging it around on a Honda uh, by that point, without any of us realising what kind of a monster was going to be awoken um, once he jumped <laughs> on a Kawasaki. Um, Gintoli was still around back then. Uh, Chas Davies was just arriving um, in the World Superbike class, having won the World Supersport title the year before um, back then. So um, Leon Camille was still sort of slugging around on an uncompetitive machine. He was on a Suzuki back at that point um so uh yeah some things have stayed the same even to this day in world super bikes um but that's our number eight the uh championship decided from magni core back in 2012 number seven though sees his head to moto gp for the first time um for the first of three championship deciders that we have in our countdown andre the first of them comes from 2013 um, as Mark marquez's um, hunt for a rookie title finally came to fruition um and he in many ways, this is another championship decider that really shouldn't have made it that far because, of course, Mark Marquez had chances to clinch this title long before then. He could have clinched it at Mategi, but didn't because Lorenzo beat him to the victory there. Um, and really, it was Mark Marquez and Honda's... Um, well, how can we put this? Their uh, mathematical errors um, at Phillip Island that really led them into this position. You mean the fact they forgot to count to 10? Mm. Um, yeah, that, a bit of a problem, that. Um, yeah, Phillip Island was um, a race where... The track had just been resurfaced. It was a diamond cut, and um, you know, uh, it, as a result, it chewed up tires and spat them out. It was a race where, it, you know, it probably had already cost Scott Redding the Moto Two Championship via injury, yeah. via enormous high side on tire dilapidation. Um, so that was fun. So they, they originally it was a twenty-five lap race originally. They cut it down to twenty-two, and then they realised, oh wait. Michel, like, so I think it was uh, Pirelli could only guarantee, I think it was 10 laps was on Bristol, that tyre. Well, Bristow, yeah, I was just about that, actually, yeah. They could only guarantee 10 laps of safety on those tyres. So they they cut it down to 19 laps of a mandatory pit stop. Um, yeah, you had, to, Mar- you had to pit on either lap 10 or lap 11. No, no, not, like, it was that another lap 9 or lap 10. Oh, was it? I thought I thought it was lap eleven because it was a twenty-two lap race, so they gave it a half distance. Either way, point being, um, Repsol Honda thought they knew better than the rules, and thought, well, hey, we're allowed to pit on. Um, you, you've got to pit by lap ten or lap eleven, so we're going to complete eleven laps and then come in on lap twelve. Uh, it was essentially what Repsol Honda thought they were going to do about this, um, not knowing that that's kind of not how the rules are written, guys. Um, because I, I remember, I mean, I, were you like me watching that race live? Because this was pre-bike live. I was watching that race and watching Matt Marquez go past the pit and exit, thinking, "What are you doing?" I, I, I was, I was in shock. I was like, um, "Guys, that's this is lap twelve. Yeah. What are you doing? Like, what are you actually doing?" And, and next thing you know, Marquez gets black flag, and I'm like, "You idiots! Yeah. <laughs> All of you!" Well, Julian Ryder calls it on commentary because um, Eurosport was still com- calling it back then. So you had Toby and Julian on the call. Um, and as soon as Mark Marquez goes past the pit lane entry, Julian Ryder goes, well, that's a black flag for that. That's a black flag. <laughs> like, what's he doing? And then uh, and um, then the red flag, uh, sorry, the black flag appears with about six laps to go. And Toby Moody's like in shock, like, oh, my God. And Julian Ryder's like, no, taking the mick, he's out. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> like he said, as soon as that happened, Toby, I said it, black flag. Uh, and he was thrown out of the Grand Prix, and Lorenzo had gone to win the race, which set us up for this decider in um, in Valencia, where Matt Marquez needed to finish, um, I think he needed to finish on the podium, didn't he? He needed to finish third or fourth yes. to win the championship. Um, and um, Lorenzo, who basically had to try and win the race and hope for the best, um, had a bit of a problem because this wasn't 2017 MotoGP as we know it where they could quite easily be four, five, six guys who could get in front of Mark Marquez. There were only really two back then um, and those were the other uh, Repsol Honda and other um, factory Yamaha back then which were ridden as they are now by Danny Pedroza and, and Valentino Rossi. Um, so Lorenzo really did the only thing he could and that was slow the field up. Yeah, back, back the pack up, yo. Back the pack up. We went full Lewis Hamilton in Abu Dhabi. We're going to slow this down. Get Bautista in there. Punch Marquez in the throat or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it became a Moto3 race for the early part of that race uh, where we had, yeah, we had Bautista who was on the Grassini uh, Honda trying to get involved, but of course he wasn't going to make a move on Mark Marquez because he's on a Honda. Um, we had the Tech 3 Yamahas of Cal Crutchlow and Bradley Smith who were keeping me up and that was when I knew um, that, that Lorenzo was slowing the field up because this was Bradley Smith's debut season and he'd never been running with the leading group. I was thinking, hang on, how's Bradley staying with the leader? Oh, <laughs> Hawkeye's oh, going, like, yeah. going slowly here. The penny had dropped here. The like, yeah. dropped. And, <laughs> and in the end, as, as bizarre as it might sound, um, the guy that perhaps cost Lorenzo any hope of making that strategy work was Lorenzo's own teammate, Valentino Rossi. Um, because, of course, Lorenzo was trying to get as many people involved in that battle as they can. But really, Dre, the one guy that could have helped him out, his teammate, Valentino Rossi, wasn't quick enough to keep up with the pack. Exactly. Rossi was like, nah, sod this. I'm, I'm just trying to win this race. <laughs> oh, yeah, Rossi, Rossi just couldn't keep up. Because, of course, Marquez knew at that point he had to get ahead of Lorenzo and stretch them out. Um, and as Matt Marquez often does, he threw caution to the wind, didn't he? He went for an overtake that he perhaps shouldn't have gone for. Um, right. Tried to duff Lorenzo up, which he succeeded in doing. Lorenzo lost ground. And Marquez then basically had to stretch the field out and basically ensure that there weren't any people close to him to make a move and drop him down below third. Um, right. and, and once Matt Marquez did that, Valentino Rossi, who was still kind of struggling by that point, he was the, uh, he was the perennial fourth guy that year. Um, in MotoGP as uh, Marquez, Pedroza and Lorenzo would dominate the podiums most of the year. Valentino Rossi just could not match that pace of Mar Marquez. So Marquez would end up gapping fourth place Valentino Rossi, which left him in a pretty safe third place um, and winning the championship. And Mark Marquez, it's it's still, it, it, given what he's achieved since then, it's still, it's still worth mentioning Drake because he's become the best rider in the world and will probably become one of the greatest riders that this sport has ever seen. But it still bears mentioning that this was a rookie Mark Marquez who was winning the MotoGP yeah. world title at the very first attempt. Indeed, and I don't think we we, we, we quite realised at the time how magnificent that was. Uh, there was a guy that's come in in his first season has beaten, you know, like the three established veterans of the upper class of MotoGP with Rossi, Lorenzo and Pedrosa being established as the as the elder statesman, but also just the three best riders on the planet. And Marquez had come in and beaten them as a rookie. It's, it was, it was, it was special. It was, it was the first real sign that, yeah, this kid is, uh, this kid is a freak. And, um, yeah, it's only gone on to, to greater things for him since then. But it's, this, this is where it all began. Essentially. This, this is, this is, this is the season that proved that, yeah, Marquez is as good as any rider on the planet 
right out of the box and we've not seen anything like that since and i'm not sure if we'll ever see anything quite like that again yeah i mean you know, we've seen it now with Maverick, and he 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 technically wasn't a rookie. Yeah, uh, this is his first season. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's still one of the sort of shining moments I've had as a writer. Where I, was, I did a season preview that year for the Checkered Flag, um, who I still write for now, um, and did a rider by rider season preview, and sort of gave a championship prediction for each rider. And it's and did this obviously back before Qatar that year, back in March, and it's still to my great pride and credit that I predicted Mark Marquez to win the title uh, in his rookie season and a number of people like, when I was sort of talking about this in the pub before the season started were looking at me sort of sideways thinking what and I was just like watch this kid go just watch him he is, he is a freak um, Mark Marquez having seen what he'd done in, in 125 and then in Moto2 in the previous years I was thinking this kid is just freakishly good and it because Repsol Honda were kind of in a tough spot around that time Dre because they were trying to have to answer the question how do you prepare for life after Casey Stoner of course my right. Mark Marquez answered it pretty quickly yeah it's like somewhere Jonathan Ray is like furiously like cutting yeah 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 because yeah, he'd of course just become a stand-in hadn't he he'd replaced Stoner that previous year for two races um, at Repsol Honda but of course the spot that because Honda for years that's why Jonathan Ray stayed at that team for so long because Honda were like no no when the time's right we, 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 we want to put you into MotoGP Johnny um, but a guy called Matt Marquez came along and they were like yeah plan, plans have changed plans have changed I'm afraid um, we've got this Marquez kid who's a bit good um, and yeah, sorry Johnny yeah, forgive us and yeah he went on uh, to win the championship in his rookie season and really it was it was his maturity um, despite the fact that he was 20 years old it was his maturity that won the championship because of course both Pedroza and Lorenzo had injuries that year um, Jorge of course famously broke his collarbone at acid um, and Pedroza did the same the round afterwards uh, at the Saxon ring um, and it was Mark Marquez Dre who basically took the mature approach he didn't get injured he wasn't the crasher that perhaps some people label him as now it was that really that gave him that head start. Once he had those points on the board and that advantage, he really put his foot on their throats, didn't he? And became the Mark Marquez that we know now, who would just go on to dominate. Yeah, just he just went on and just crushed it. It was it was as simple as that. I mean, it helps the guys made of basically rubber. Yeah. Uh, after having like a 210 mile an hour crash at Mugello earlier that mm. season, but hey, he was counting. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where you just go, yeah. Sometimes you know, staying healthy is the best way of going about it. Your best ability is your rider, is your availability. Mm. Um, and that's what worked out for Marquez in the end. I also give another shout out to a good mate of mine as well. Uh, Liam Jenkins, who um, used to be a, a big-time motorsport commentator, he was the only other guy that I saw that had the confidence to say Marquez was going to win that title. Um, and he, he stuck he stuck to his guns, and he ended up being proven completely right. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and uh, Marquez has... <laughs> He's uh, too busy that, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marquez has uh, yeah, pretty much won everything in sight since um, 2015 apart. Yeah, he, he's been that good uh, in MotoGP. Um, we will come back to MotoGP and... Um, two other uh, title deciders that uh, got the world talking um, in the second half of our countdown. We've got one more to go before we break off for the news, and that is number six. Um, and for the first time, we head to BSB and to Brands Hatch, which is kind of timely, given that they're there this weekend for the title decider. Um, it's 2013, and um, this is the point of the show where Rebecca James really wishes she were not in Australia, and we're here talking about this, because this was the Wandre where Alex Lowe's became British Superbike champion. Um, and a, a very tense day i mean there are, there are so many other championship deciders which um produce excitement or produce controversy um we have some later on which produce both in equal measure this was just straight up tense wasn't it because this was a, a wet sunday at brands hatch um where alex lowes and shaky burn um kind of 
from memory, they almost tried to hand each other the championship because Alex Lowe's in race two, race one of the Sunday, because they ran on the Saturday as well. Alex Lowe's crashes out of that race in the wet conditions, only for Shaky Bird to do exactly the same thing uh, in that race and set up this final race decider between the two. Exactly. It was it was a it was a weekend of uh, you know of attrition, so to speak, and uh, it was a weekend where both guys had made mistakes that had opened the door for other people to to take advantage of. And yeah, it's it's what led to this essential like we're gonna take all 2013 final round showdown. Yeah, we had the controversy earlier in the season, the controversy that Bex probably doesn't want us to mention, where Alex Lowe's famously wiped Shaky Burn out at Assen. Um, the yeah. round before um, in a move that got Alex Lowe's disqualified from that race um, given that they deemed him at fault for it but um, he, he ended up going to the final round at Browns with a slim points lead um, and what made this final round for me so impressive the final decider was that because they both crashed out of that second race in the wet conditions they were both way down on the grid for the final round of the season Alex Lowe's had to start Indeed. ninth on the grid Shaky Byrne had to start 22nd on the grid um, and to his immense credit, Shaky Bear managed to slice his way through the field. And in the end, we had um, Josh Brooks winning the race. One of the forgotten facts from that weekend at Brands in 2013, Josh Brooks did a triple and won all three races. Um, it was, it, yeah, which um, just shows you how bad his showdown had gone because he won all three races and still didn't win the title because <laughs> he was that far yep. back already. Um, but Alex Lowe's and Shaky Burn, despite having started on the third row and the eighth row, respectively, were battling for second in the end. And uh, Alex Lowe's, who was still in his very, very early 20s by that point, Dre, held his nerve in a final lap showdown with the guy who at that point was going for a record fourth title. Indeed, um, it was it, Lowe's put the wall up, and there was nothing Shaky could do about it in the end. And yeah, Shaky had to, had to follow Lowe's home in third, and it was enough for, for a very young uh, Alex Lowe's to win the title. And uh, it was tense, it was dramatic. It, it, it was a weekend where it had gone back and forth pretty much the whole way through. And Josh Brooks was sitting there punching his punching his food tank, thinking, "What could have been if I hadn't completely blown the first round?" Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, it was a, it was a great finale and one where you know we we saw another new young star come through the class. Yeah, yeah, it was a real coming of age moment for Alex Lowe's because he was he'd signed for the Samsung Honda team that season alongside Yuichi Kianari, who um, was returning to the championship. And many sort of saw that as oh yeah, Kianari is going to be the the returning hero who's going to challenge Shaky for the title. And um, we've got. And you know, Alex Lowe's is a teammate who learned the way and ended up being the other way around. It was Alex Lowe's who would take up the championship battle for that team. As Key and I, we sort of struggled to readjust to life back in BSB again. And he didn't really adjust at all until a couple of years later. And um, this was one sure, uh, title to the side which probably could have made the list had Kianari not got injured. Because he injured himself at Brands in 2014 as he and Shaky were going for the title, which robbed us of what would have been a brilliant title decider um, back that year. Um, and in the end, we didn't get one. Um, but we got one in 2013 as Alex Lowe's really came of age that year and won the British Superbike title. And um, we've got five more to go and we will come to those shortly. But first, let's do the news. Um, and we mentioned uh, right at the top of the show that championships were up for grabs last weekend, um, including the Speedway GP title, but Jason Doyle has not won it, um, which might not disappoint him because it means he'll have to clinch it at his home round in Australia instead. Um, but, he oh, went, no. but he went to <laughs> but he went to Torin looking to win the championship. And in the end, Patrick Dudek, his nearest championship rival, took 18 points from the weekend and the overall victory um, to cut Doyle's lead to 14 points and keep the championship alive heading into the final round. Doyle, who failed to make the final um, and therefore lost a lot of points, he goes to the final round in Australia 14 points ahead of Patrick Dudek in the championship with 21 up for grabs. 
Um, and that's basically if Dudek sweeps the board and wins all seven races he takes part in that night, um, which is um, a very rare achievement in Speedway. So Doyle needs a maximum of eight points um, from the final round in Australia at the Etihad Stadium in Melbourne um, in a couple of weeks' time to clinch the championship. Um, one championship that has been decided, though, is the Moto3 Junior World Championship. We flagged this up last week. Dennis Foggia going to Aragon, looking to win the championship, and he has done just that. Um, he didn't win the race at Aragon. That went to Jean Messia, a rider who we've told you about a few times this season, particularly when he impressed us in Austria. Um, Messia took the victory, but it wasn't enough to keep the championship alive. Foggia finishing close behind him, and Dennis Foggia has become the Moto3 Junior World Champion, and, of course, will head into the Grand Prix class with Sky Dio 46 this season as Junior Champion. Right, now, Moto2 News, and um, this is the first of a few stories that concern next year. Um, Moto2 News, for the Stop and Go team, they've confirmed their riders for next season. I know you're all on Tentooks waiting to find out who they are. Uh-huh. Um, Isaac Vinales is one of them. He stays with that team, and they've signed up uh-huh. a Moto3 youngster. No, it's not that one. Not that one. No, 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 I'll just tell you. It's Jules Danilo, um, who's moved up. Um, so, yeah, I know. Um, we're all, the crowd goes mild at that one. Um, he's joining his yep. teammate, Romano Fadati, um, who, of course, is also moving up to Moto2 next season with the Marinelli Snipers team. Um, Danilo is moving up with Stop and Go, which would indicate that he's got a bit of money behind him um, because he's going to be moving up <laughs> to Moto2 uh, next season. Now, this story is much more important, and we'll have much more of you interested, because this is World Superbike News, because um, Red Bull Honda have confirmed their other rider for next season, because we expect Stefan Bridal to be staying on board with that team. We believe he uh, he has a contract for next season, and uh, given that he's sponsored by Red Bull, Red Bull are keen for Bridal to stay on board um, at that team for next season. Um, Dre, we now know his teammate, and the perennial rider for hire has finally bagged himself a full-on factory ride. Rider for hire got paid! Yes! <laughs> Here for it. Um, I, I guess I can't call him right of a higher no more. That's yeah. actually kind of sad. Um, but yes, Leon Camia will be will be in on one of those Red Bull Hondas next year um, with Tenkate, and uh, good for him because he is a guy that has been deserving of quality machinery ever since dragging that scrap heap of an MV to semi decent finishing positions. He's done a fantastic job with that, and. Um, I'm glad he like. I'm glad that he's being rewarded for it. With hopefully a project that can get him up up the field in in you know in later weeks and months, and hopefully not too long before Honda finds themselves in a better position than they were before. Mm. Uh, but he, because yeah, Cameo is a quality rider. He's done fantastic work for MV, and I'm glad he's been rewarded. Yeah, you can you can see Cameo play a key role for that team, can't you? Because he's got so much experience in World Superbikes. Um, from his time with Aprilia, his time with Suzuki, as I mentioned earlier on, and um, more recently with MV Augusta. Um, he, for better or for worse, I don't think Cameo necessarily enjoys having this reputation, but he's earned a reputation as a great rider at developing a bike. Um, of course, he's been the sole rider for MV Augusta for a number of years, and I think the main reason MV have wanted Cameo as their sole rider is because he's so good at sort of leading the development of a bike. And of course, if you've got a teammate who's giving you completely different information, um, it makes it muddies the waters a bit. Um, so, yes. so, so Cameo's done such a good job at bringing that MV on, and I think the reason. Uh, and one of the many reasons that MV Augusta have made such progress in recent years is because of Camille, um, who's done such a great job for them. And he's um, not been rewarded with the results because that bike has struggled to make the finish without braking. Um, but for better or for worse, Drake, Camille has this reputation. And really, a rider who is adept at developing a bike and making a bad bike better is really what Red Bull Honda need right now. Exactly. They, they, need, they need a development guy. They need a guy that can get on there and find ways of making the bike better. A guy that you know provides good feedback and is you know willing to take his time to get you know, to to figure this out basically. And you know that was probably the seat. Probably that's probably the way the best way of summing up Honda 
Um, like this year was figuring it out right now, especially with all the, the negative stuff that's happened with them this year. They need a consistent guy on that seat that's going to be able to develop it and get it up there. And Camia could very well be that guy. So I think it's, I think it's a great fit for the, for the for the Red Bull Honda team. And uh, ho- hopefully it'll be, it'll be the first sign of some brighter times coming into that team after a disastrous 2017 season. Yeah, it's been the season from hell for that team. And yeah, we wish we wish Leon Camille and Ripple Honda all the best. I think that's a great a great fit, a, a great great a welcome payday for Leon Camille, um, who's been uh, as I say slumming it around on an NBA Augusta for the last few years that hasn't necessarily rewarded him with the results his riding has deserved. Um, and also for the team, we've managed to uh, find probably the. I'd say, Dre, the best rider available. I mean, Loris Baz is available and was in talks with that team, but given who's out there and given that the um, you know the big four seats are taken up by arguably the four best riders in the championship at the moment, um, of course, we've got the uh, Yamaha seats that are filled as well, Lowe's and Man Max staying on board. I don't think Rebel Honda can really expect to have done an awful lot better than Cameo, given how badly their season's gone. They, they haven't really put the greatest advert together to sign a quality rider to their team, have they? Quote unquote quality rider, yeah, exactly, and yeah, I think you're right. I think Camia is definitely the, the the best guy available. I think that was one that definitely made the most sense. Um, yeah, get Baz as possible, but Baz is a bit of an outlier because again, he's not he's not um, been in the class for you know four years now. Um, so for me, yeah, I think that was the best move they could have possibly gotten. They got a guy that's in the top five or six, um, or, or at, at his best uh, on a bike that we know is not competitive compared to some of the other stronger factory units that, that are in world superbikes right now so i think that was an excellent high for him and again as i said I, th- I think you said i think that was the best tire they could have possibly gotten mm. does loris Bass go to envy i wonder hmm. um oh, well <laughs> well no because i'm trying to think because in many ways baz and cami are alike in that they are probably too tall for motorcycles <laughs> Um, right. But um, so in, in many ways, he'd be the like-for-like replacement for Camille at MV. But um, MV Rusto, of course, have spoken in recent months that they want to expand to a two-rider lineup for for next season. Well, they now have two two riders to find rather than one. Um, one who's been linked for a, a number of weeks has been their factory rider in Super Sport, which is PJ Jacobson, um, who has right. who has ridden superbikes before. But that was because that was British superbikes back in um, the early part of this decade. He rode. Um, in BSB, and um, he was on the grid in that famous race that we mentioned uh, a moment ago with Alex Lowe's and Shaky Burn. PJ Jackson was on the front row of the grid for it, um, so he knows he knows how to ride a superbike. But he's been riding Super Sport for the last few years. Um, but he might be who MV Augusta ends up turning to um, for next season because um, if they do run two riders next season, they have got two spots to fill because their current rider is off to Honda. Um, MotoGP news for next season, and um, we've we've spoken actually in recent weeks about how the grid for next season is confirmed. Uh, every spot confirmed because every rider on the grid has a contract. Well, that's not necessarily been true because there has been a bit of doubt um, surrounding the second seat at KTM. Paulus Bargrove's safe, but uh, there has been talk during recent weeks that Bradley Smith's spot might be under fire um, and the man taking aim would be Mika Calio, the test rider. Well, KTM have clarified matters this week. Um, it's almost like that vote of confidence that you give a un- an under-pressure manager um, in football where... KTM have declared um, and have given a vote of confidence for Bradley Smith and said he is still our race rider for next year. And um, is he a tad? Yeah, is he a tad lucky? A, a bit. I, I think so. To be honest with you, um, it's one of those things where you just go, "Well, oh, it's it's it was dodgy because the way that Bradley was going about himself, I was I was worried for him. I was worried that you know Calio would come along." Has made him look a bit silly on a couple of occasions, and I was I was sitting there thinking, uh oh, this like this this could be bad basically, and um, 
yeah, I'm glad that Bradley's been given a second chance to really get it together. But this is like the second get your shit together Bradley moment of his MotoGP career already because we, we we've been here before with Bradley. Hopefully he gets the crack of these Michelin tires quickly, otherwise he's going to be in big trouble. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how um, that voter confidence he got from Herve Poncheral a couple of years ago really basically transformed him into a top six MotoGP rider the year after. Um, and and it, it, it was funny as well, because I noticed him from free practice today, Bradley Smith was ahead of Paul Spargo in both sessions at Mateki. Um, right. Like, it's suddenly, like again, it's suddenly like, um, who was it who mentioned it in, in BT Sports commentary, Neil Hodgson mentioned it um, in the first Moto3 session this morning um, before, right. before I decided to tag out and go to bed um, where he talks about, <laughs> because he was talking about John McPhee and how he doesn't have a contract yet for 27, uh, 2018 at the uh, British talent team and he talks about how many riders um, around the world from perhaps different nationalities um, you know, that sort of that, that, that fear of being out of a job acts as inspiration, it fires them up to do better um, right, and and that's almost what Alberto Pucci is trying to do with John McPhee. But Neil Hodgson's point was, with, it seems with British riders, it almost has the opposite effect. It puts so much pressure on them that they end up sort of going into their shells a bit. And it's almost like the British riders seem to need the security of having a ride for the next season to actually deliver at their best. And Smith's almost another example of that. Exactly. Um, it's definitely a thing where it's like he's a confidence rider. He's a rider that likes having confidence and. If it doesn't work out for him, then he, he goes away a little bit. That's when he starts to struggle. And, yeah, that, that, that could be a problem for Bradley. So he, he need, I hope the faith injection that's been put into this by giving him another con- contract for another year gets him back up the field a little bit. Mm, yeah, and it'll be interesting to see next season if he starts slowly and then uh, Calio rocks up for his first wild card, uh, wherever that will be, um, Argentina or somewhere, who knows, or Jerez. Um, and it, it, where Calio figures, um, because that is going to be interesting. You almost, you almost wonder whether that might change mid-season if Bradley's struggles continue. I mean, in terms of Calio, I think Calio can count himself a bit unlucky because he's, he's he could not have done any more in his wildcard outings right. to to say to the team that I deserve Tremendous to be put on a race job. rider. Um, but part of me does think, and I, I appreciate part of this is the Bradley Smith fan in me talking here. Um, but it's almost like cricket because you hear this a lot in cricket where someone becomes better when they're out of the team it's one of those where you know a, a player becomes a better player when they're out of the team because you want them in the team ahead of the guy that's currently on in the spot right now and oh, uh, yeah and, and part of me thinks whether that's the case with Calio where he hadn't really done an awful lot in his MotoGP career because he has been in MotoGP before um to suggest that this level of performance would be in him on a consistent basis and I and I still have an, a slight element of doubt where if they put Calio on the bike regularly next season, would he be able to, without the same level of testing that he's had this year um, and the benefit of new development parts and all that sort of stuff, would Calio be able to produce that level of performance 18 times a year rather than on three or four wildcard outings next year? That's still the doubt I have in my mind, Dre. How much of that was the Bradley Smith and you talking? Uh, part of it. But, but I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's worth mentioning, though, because... The, the roles would be reversed, wouldn't they, next season? If Cal- no, if Calio's struggling on a, on a KTM factory race bike next season and then Bradley rocks up at Jerez as a wildcard and smokes Calio, just imagine the criticism KTM would come in for. Yeah, you, you, you make a very valid point uh, that, you know, Calio has not been in this position before where, you know, he's not, he's not had a consistent race seat before for a long time. And... Yeah, like there's there's definitely something to be said about the possibility that you know it might not work out, and 
Yeah, I, I guess I get it. I get yeah. it. I actually, oh, don't worry. Yeah, I, I I feel for Calio. I, I like as I say, Calio could have done absolutely no more um, in his wildcard outings. I mean, hell, he finished in the top ten um, at, at Austria earlier this year uh, and ran with the leaders. He, he was fifth in free practice um, in his last outing in Aragon and finished eleventh ahead of Bradley again. So Calio could have done no more um, than he's done, right. but. <laughs> I I I just think I think I think Bradley Smith's worth persevering with. I think I think he's shown enough um, in his MotoGP career um, to suggest that when he clicks on a MotoGP bike, he's I mean he, he's he's shown he can beat Paul regularly um, if he's if he's got it's the okay. bike underneath him. So uh, I think this is without question this is the um, you you called it the second get your shit together contract that Bradley's had. This is I think this is the definite last chance saloon for Bradley um, because he, he many people thought, including me, that that was his last chance at Tech Three when they were he was given that extra year and of course he justified that fate with the best season of his life. Uh, I think if he doesn't deliver next season, that will be the end of Bradley Smith as a MotoGP rider, uh, without any question, um, next season. Um, as far as the rider that's taken his place at Tech 3 this year is concerned, Jonas Folger, who's really impressed us throughout the year, um, he, he'd gone a bit quiet in recent races, um, both uh, at Mizano and at Aragon. Um, we hadn't really seen Jonas Folger up the front that much. Um, Dre, I think we've now had the explanation why it's been something rather out of Folger's control. Yeah, the man's got a pretty nasty virus by the looks of it. And um, he's, he's, he's going to likely be on the shelf for, for most likely all three flyaway rounds now, which is very sad to hear. Um, was was having a, a, a great rookie season. But now he turns out he's been suffering through this for a little while. And it's a shame because he's been very, very strong this season. And yeah, now he's, his season has been effectively derailed. Uh, by this, so um, God, I wish I wish uh, I wish Jonas a speedy one, um, but yeah, he's 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 not in the best of health right now. Yeah, he's um, yeah. Unfortunately for Jonas Folger, he's he's a victim of the calendar, isn't he? Uh, in many ways, of course, because the, 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 the races come so thick and fast now every every weekend for the next three weekends. Um, unfortunately, Folger finds himself um, on the shelf for now. I mean, he, he's he's mentioned in the uh, press release from the team that he suffered from the Epstein Barr virus in in the past. Um, so he doesn't know at the minute if it's if it's this. He's got to go back to Munich for tests um, to um, to find out what the actual extent of his, of his issues are. Um, but speaking in the Tech 3 press release, Folger said that he came to Japan and was motivated for the three flyaways, but he's been feeling really weak since the Mizano and Aragon rounds. Um, and on arrival in Japan, he's been struggling with his energy levels. Even leaving the hotel room was impossible for me. Um, and unfortunately, I had to miss some Yamaha events, which I'm very sorry for. He met with Harvey on Wednesday night, and uh, they agreed to go for a check with the doctors. And he met the Clinical Mobile team, and they've advised me to return to Germany right away for a series of blood tests. I mean, the guy's not well. No, that he's 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 sick. That he is sick. There is legi- there is no other way of saying it. He is he is legitimately very ill and he's got a serious problem. Mm, yeah, and um, yeah, Heather Pontarella said that he is ninety nine percent that he won't be at Phillip Island either. Um, and don't know about you, Dre, but if I was going to return from a pretty bad virus, the one place I wouldn't want to return is in the sweltering heat of Sepang either. Um, so so I'm not so sure we'll see Folger until no. Valencia. Um, it's. Um, a good opportunity for someone else, though. A young Japanese rider, Kota Nozane, who's one of the uh, Yamaha test riders. He was one of the other riders who was in the frame to replace Valentino Rossi had he not made it back for Aragon. Um, Nozane, handily being Japanese, is in Mategi this weekend and is replacing Folger and was bloody impressive in free practice on Friday as well. He was right on the pace of the two factory Yamahas in the wet um, in 13th place. So uh, Nozane doing a cracking job on the... Uh, Second of the Tech 3 Yamahas this weekend in place of Folger as teammate to Joan Zarco. 
Um, John Zarko, incidentally, um, impressed us all in the mini moto race that they had at uh, Mategi um, on Thursday. One of the uh, favourite features for me of the Japanese Copy Weekend, where they pull out the electric mini moto bikes and have a race around yes. on those. Um, a yes. race that was won by Tito Rabat, incidentally, um, his first win for a couple of years. Um, um, so that took place. Um, head to MotoGP's Facebook, by the way, if you haven't watched that. It is a very, very funny video indeed um, of uh, what took place on Thursday at Mategi. Um, BSB news then, and uh, we'll be coming back to BSB before we go at the end of this show. Um, because, of course, they're uh, at their final round of the season at Brands Hatch this weekend for the season finale, the triple header around the GP circuit. Uh, and, Dre, one man who will be on the grid is Kyle Wright, who, unfortunately, his World Supersport campaign ended rather early as his Kawasaki Pichetti team cut in with two rounds to go. Uh, after his season kind of derailed. Um, he's back this weekend for FS3 Kawasaki in place of the still-injured Billy McConnell. And if we go back to um, British Supersport days, um, Carl Ride has already shown that on British shores, he's arguably as good as anyone. So this is going to be an exciting one-off sort of cameo role for Ride to see what he can do and perhaps earn himself a BSB ride next year. Exactly. I mean, this is just, this is your this is your advert right here. More than anything else, um, he, he needs to find something here. Um, would be ideal. It's a bit of a changeable conditions weekend. Rain is predicted. We had rain in in in, in FP one, which has which has been going on as we record this episode. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a great opportunity for Carl Wright to, to show himself. I mean, this would be the perfect sort of class for him to re-establish himself after maybe you giving a little bit too much too soon um in world super sport alongside keenan i mean that was a, that was always going to be a challenge to be mm. keenan's teammate there um and you know having to lean on him even more after keenan got hurt it, it was a bad news it was bad news for him. It, was, it was it was i think it was almost like an unwinnable situation for carl ride really um so again a, a fresh start in bsb might be the way to go mm, yeah incidentally that first few practice session of bsb and brands which has just finished as we record this um shaky burn fastest in that with uh, leon haslam down in 14 shaky burn will be somehow running down to race direction saying any chance we can make this the grid uh, for race one on the saturday with haslam sure, down in 14 um we need it to um give us a championship burn fastest from dixon and brooks uh, in that first session uh, so the men in second, third, and fourth in the championship were first, second, and third, not in that order. Um, but Haslam, um, down in 14th in that first few practice session, which, as Dre mentioned, was rain-affected. Carl Ride um, was the slowest rider out there when he was down in 25th place, but still very early days. Um, one other piece of BSB news, and we'll make this very quick. They've confirmed the calendar for next year. Spoiler alert, it's exactly the same as this year's. Um, only one even slight alteration that I've noticed, and that's that Snetterton and Knockhill are the other way around. But it's essentially, it's the same sir circuits in near enough the same order with the same three uh, uh alton park assen and silverstone making up the showdown in 2018 that is the 2018 british superbike calendar when we return we will resume our countdown of our top 10 title deciders and we'll be heading back to MotoGP in valencia for one of the shining moments in the history of MotoGP. on bike live and let's resume our countdown of our favorite championship deciders at number five and we're heading back to dre probably the greatest MotoGP gp season um 
perhaps arguably up until last year that we've ever seen. 2006 and the championship decider between Valentino Rossi and Nicky Hayden. A championship that can be pretty much made into a movie um, based on how it panned out that year. Um, and both riders had very, very different roads um, to this decider in Valencia. Valentino Rossi, who uh, had been the dominant force in MotoGP for the last five years, um, suddenly found a Yamaha that didn't really want to play a ball. It wasn't quick on some occasions and it right. wasn't reliable at others. Um, and we'll come on to Hayden in a moment, but for Valentino Rossi to come from where he came from to head into Valencia with a shot was quite an impressive feat in itself. It was indeed, because Yamaha was a donkey that year. It, it, it retired. It wasn't particularly quick on occasion. It had numerous mechanical failures that had hurt Valentino Rossi um, on, on, on several occasions. And he, he was limping this champion, but he still found a way to be leading going into the final round. Um, something to do with that race in Estoril. Um, we never talk about that. Um, but um, yeah, it's one of those things where... Going into the final round, Rossi still had a very large advantage because of Estoril and obviously the, the Danny Pedrosa takeout that heard around the world. Um, fun times, um, in, indeed. And uh, yeah, Valentino Rossi still pretty much controlled his own destiny going into that one. He did. And Nicky Hayden, um, the aforementioned, <laughs> he had a very different route to the because he was really leading from the front for most of that season. He wasn't doing it by virtue of weight of victories, more weight of podiums that year. He only won two races um, in that 2006 season, two of his three all-time uh, MotoGP race wins. Um, and they were they were dramatic, weren't they? In particular, his race win at Assen, where he denied Colin Edwards um, what would have been Colin Edwards' first and only MotoGP win um, at the final chicane at Assen when they um, went side-by-side side and only one of them came out. Uh, on the other side of it, um, that one being Nicky Hayden. Um, but heading into Estoril, which we have to mention, we can't mention 2006 and the title decided without talking Estoril, um, Nicky Hayden actually went into Estoril with a chance of winning it there and then. Um, but the uh, circumstances certainly didn't play out that like Rather than winning the championship, he almost went to the point of losing it. Exactly. Um, as, as, as we talk about that, his teammate um, got a bit too overzealous on the bump at turn six. And next thing you know, um, they're both down. And uh, Nicky Hayden looked like he was about to rip Danny Pedrosa's head clean off his spine. That's something out of a Mortal Kombat fatality. Mm. It wasn't It wasn't pretty, to say the least. And um, yeah, Valentino Rossi would go on to, wait, he didn't win? Mm. What do you mean Tony Elias got there first? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by two thousandths of a second. Um, in the still the greatest race I think MotoGP's ever seen uh, at Estoril back in 2006. Tony Elias, the saviour of Honda, um, as Julian Ryder termed him. Back the dumpster truck up. Yeah, <laughs> back the dumpster truck of gold, of watches, of diamonds, the whole lot um, for, for Tony Elias, um, who uh, who rescued Honda by uh, by costing Valentino Rossi five points on that day. Five points that would actually come in rather handy for Nicky Hayden come the next round at Valencia, where. Nicky Hayden's task was to win the race, essentially, with Valentino Rossi third or lower um, in that round. So uh, Nicky Hayden had sort of made the point to Danny Pedrosa as they tried to reconcile at Repsol Honda that, hey, if we go one and two at the final round in Valencia, we can repair this. We can still win the championship. Um, and it was astonishing, really, Dre. The, the, the circumstances of that title decider are astonishing. Where Valentino Rossi's on pole position, um, Nicky Hayden's with him on the front row of the grid, and Valentino Rossi really makes a holix at the start, drops back at the start, including a little elbow in his um, in his side by Nicky Hayden on the way past. 
um, down to turn one. Just making sure. Yeah, just <laughs> making sure. I still love that shot of the onboard as Nicky Hayden comes up alongside him and just sort of rests his elbow on Valentina Rossi as they're on the, on the brakes for turn one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming for this championship, Valley. Um, and, and Valentina ends up dropping down to sort of seventh or eighth at the, first, at the start of that race with Nicky Hayden up the road. And in real time, with two, three laps gone in that race, Nicky Hayden's in position to win the World Championship and Valentina Rossi, Dre, is not making any progress, which led to perhaps the most astonishing and um, the, the biggest error, arguably, of Valentino Rossi's entire MotoGP career. Yeah, I think, you know, he skies it. And it's like, whoa, where are you going, Valentino? He clearly pushed himself too hard and he had an enormous freaking high side, um, which effectively ended his championship hopes. He was able to continue, but he was just obviously just too far back at that point to really make a difference. The bike was damaged, and yeah, he essentially gift-wrapped the title to Nicky Hayden. Yeah, Nicky Hayden, who then only really had to finish third or fourth to win the championship. He finished third behind the Ducatis of Troy Bayliss and Loris Caparossi. Um, Bayliss winning, <laughs> uh, having just wrapped up a dominant World Superbike title in 2006, turned up at MotoGP's final round and won that too. Because uh, he was in that kind of form that year, Bayliss. Um, incidentally, you'll hear a bit more about Bayliss in a moment uh, when we get to number four. Um, but uh, yeah, an astonishing ride from him and a Ducati one too, with Nicky Hayden in third. And I have to say, Dre, and it it becomes even more emotional given what's happened this year with Nicky, sadly. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen a championship victory, a a successful moment, a a victorious moment in a rider's career met with such raw emotion. Um, as that one of all oh, the of all yeah. these ten title ties we've had, I don't think any of them match this one for pure emotion. Yeah, definitely. It came it came to emotions, I and mean, when it came to just um, just seeing just the just a sheer joy on Nicky Hayden's face at achieving his lifelong dream, and oh man, uh, gosh, like his his dad was there. The you had the traditional Valencia fireworks celebration, and like. It, it was like the man's birthday and Christmas had been rolled into one in 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 one fell swoop. He was the happiest man on the planet at that point in time. It was it was ridiculous. It was emotional. It was beautiful. Um, it was a wonderful time, and um, you you could see just how much it meant to Nicky to to to, to win that championship. And uh, it's it's a scene and an image that I will never forget. Yeah, uh, I've seen I've seen him on on the like helmet off, just in just sheer ecstasy. Yeah, the image that sort of sticks with me. That, I mean, though, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But of course, there's the the, the famous moment as Valentino Rossi pulls alongside Nicky Hayden and sort of rests his arm on his hand on his arm and congratulates him for the championship. And Nicky Hayden almost sort of bows his head as if to say, "I'm I'm not worthy." Uh, he still sort of feels he still sort of feels a bit sheepish, even though he's just beaten the guy to the world title um, back in 2006. Yeah. Of course, this was this was peak Valentino Rossi. This was him at in his pomp back in 2006, um, when he was the dominant rider in motorcycle sport. Um, and Nicky Hayden beat him to a world title. The only guy in that 990 era to beat Valentino Rossi to a world championship um, back in that era. That was how that was. That's just, that puts it into perspective what Nicky Hayden did that year. Um, and uh, the quote that still sticks with me. Um, from Nicky Hayden, because of course he'd had that 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 huge low uh, at Esteril, followed by the huge height of Valencia, and the, the quote still sticks to me. It still gives me goosebumps now, where he said, "You know, I'm just a firm believer that good things happen to good people." Um, and of course, that that happened to Nicky that day when he won the World Championship uh, and realised his dream. Um, that is number five. I'm incredibly analyst. Um, I know that will be one that gets you all sort of tweeting us with disgust. I'm on a spot underscore one hundred one. You got that at number five. Um, but yeah, we've got four incredible ones. Sorry, to come. bro. Um, and we're heading to World Superbikes next for number four and Imola of two thousand and two. Um, 
and I'm there, there have been many great races since Dre. Um, admittedly, not many of them this year, um, but <laughs> this race perhaps would still go down. This race still stands the test of time, doesn't it? And arguably one of the greatest world superbike races of all time between Colin Edwards and Troy Bayliss. Indeed, and these were two guys at the absolute peak of their powers, two guys that, you know, were... But uh, it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, wait, you thought this would be a bit higher, didn't you? Mm. Um, so yeah, did I. It, is, um, it, it was a dogfight between, you know, Bayliss and Edwards who were in, the, who were in their primes, and, you know, those two were a country mile ahead of anybody else in the championship. They were the dominant guys by, by a mile, and it all came down to Imola 2002. They won every single race bar one uh, between them that year. The only race that they didn't win was Makoto Tamada, um, who wild carded on a Honda at, in the uh, Japanese round that year, which I think was at Suzuka from memory. I'll have to check up on that one. But yeah, um, Tamada wild carded in Japan on a Japanese motorcycle and then won one of the two races. Other than that, Edwards and Bailey swept the board um, in 2002. Um, and, and really, uh, around sort of two-thirds distance in that season, Bailey's pretty much had it won. He was 58 points ahead. Um, of Colin Edwards in the championship. Colin Edwards would then go on to win the last nine races in a row. Um, Ridiculous. To win the championship, including, crucially, the penultimate round at Assen, where Bayliss crashed out of race two and basically went from 19 points ahead to one point behind, uh, heading into the final weekend. Edwards would then beat Bayliss in race one at Imola, which meant in race two, and this is probably the reason that this isn't higher than number four, Colin Edwards didn't actually need to win the race. It wasn't a winner-takes-all showdown. It was a... Bayless must win and back him up. It's similar to Lorenzo at Valencia. And actually, with about five laps to go, it looks as like if Bayless is actually going to do it as he's backing Colin Edwards into his teammate Rubens House on the second of the uh, uh, Infostrada Hondas, uh, Ducati, should I say. Um, and unfortunately, Edwards is able to up the pace again and it ends up becoming their straight fight between the two. Um, but I have to say, Dre, watching that race yesterday uh, via totally illegal sources, I might add. Um, of course. It, I forgot how great that race. And do you know what else I've forgotten? Imola was absolutely packed to the rafters that day. Um, and the absolute roars when um, Edwards and Bayless are going side by side through Toza. They do the Toza hairpin where there's that grass bank on the outside and it's absolutely yes. packed with spectators. 2002, late 2002, we're pretty much talking here, aren't we, of when World Superbikes was at its absolute peak. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, World Superbikes was was arguably bigger than MotoGP, but Valentino Rossi was the guy at that point, but this was before Rossi had really established yeah, his the legacy. MotoG the MotoGP area was just getting started. It was. It was just getting started, and the field of the quality of field wasn't as strong in MotoGP back then. Worlds, I'd argue, still had the better top-tier roster with Edwards, Bayliss, Hodson, Noriyuki Hargus was still a thing, Ben Bostrom, Ruben Zaus, a young James Tozeland. Yeah, 21-year-old James Tozeland. Yeah, what happened to him? Um, but, yeah, it was one of those things where... The World Superbike field was still arguably stronger than MotoGP's at that point in time, and yeah, it, it was still like it was still carrying a lot of a lot of the the big weight of TV networks and and fans. You know, but the MotoGP era was still kind of like separate, so to speak. And Worlds was still, I think, like the the peak of what it was now. And yeah, this was this was the prime time fight that people were looking for. Yeah, um, Tamada's win it was at Sugo. It wasn't at Suzuka. Um, that, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, uh, 
because World Superbikes course that year, it was at that time it was still benefiting from the the BBC TV coverage. BBC treated it as the pinnacle um, back then. Yes. Of course, um, BBC weren't showing MotoGP back <laughs> back at that stage. They were showing World Superbikes because it had it either had the better riders. It had the British interest because there wasn't really any British rider of note in MotoGP around that point. It was really Jeremy McWilliams and that was it. Um, so, you know, many British fans were interested in the fortunes of Neil Hodgson, of James Toesland. Uh, by that point, of course, Neil Hodgson would go on to win the title the following year um, in 2003. Um, but yeah, an astonishing race between Edwards and Bayless. And yeah, like that, that was the main thing that stuck with me. The main takeaway I had from watching that race again, 15 years on, was just my God, the circuit is absolutely full. And you can hear the crowd over the bikes as as Edwards and Bayliss are knocking spots off each other um, on the final lap. And in many ways, just that race, I mean, it didn't end up deciding the championship because Edwards, even if he'd followed Bayliss home, he would have won the title by a point. But just watching those two, as you say, Dre, at the peak of their powers, just go to war for 21 laps. It's a race that even 15, year, 15 years on, you can't tire of watching. Exactly. It's a classic. There's no other way to describe it. It's an absolute classic. But, uh, you know, it's 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 symbolic of World Superbikes. It was arguably the last real amazing World Superbike moment of this era where just seeing those two guys just absolutely pummel the shit out of each other. Mm. And again, those were the two best guys in Worlds by a country mile at that point in time. And they were they wrote their own story for for, for the for the championship. And, you know, Bayless just about came out. Um, Bayless just about came out behind, but Edwards was was phenomenal. Yeah, to close out the season. And that was Edwards' farewell. He then moved on to MotoGP uh, after that in in 2003. Bayless would come back, and of course, would go on to win another two uh, world titles to end up with three um, world superbike crowns, um, which now has him tied for second with Jonathan Ray uh, in the all-time world superbike list. Um, but yeah, just an astonishing 2002 season. Um, it's a race where you can still find sort of like highlights edits of it on YouTube somewhere and I would thoroughly encourage you to go and watch it it is a brilliant brilliant race between the two just basically watching Colin Edwards throw caution to the wind on that final lap to try and win the race when he flat out doesn't need to um, because all he needs to do is follow Troy Bailey's home but Colin Edwards wanted to go out and depart World Superbikes with a final victory um, and that's exactly in the end what he did um, now four to go in our list four races to go and at number four we um, uh, sorry three races to go and we head to MotoGP once again um, and 2015 um, you didn't think we'd um, leave this one out did you Rossi versus Lorenzo at Valencia um, in 2015 um, a race really Dre in many ways the finale wasn't really as good as the build up that preceded it um, the finale was really shaped by the build-up that preceded it. It was the yes. the, the race where, of course, Valentino Rossi had to come from the back of the grid based on what happened in Sepang. And really, as, as much as this, this showdown didn't end up with the result that many of the punters wanted to see, um, this race perhaps was... You know, never were more eyes on a MotoGP race than this one. This perhaps can go down even now as perhaps the biggest MotoGP race of all time. Arguably, certainly the most important, I'd argue. Um, yeah, we all know the story of Sepang and Philip Island and how we got to this point and how Mark Marquez was basically directly involved in the title fight despite not actually being in the title fight. Um, we all know what happened at Sepang. We all know you know what, what Rossi did or did not do. And, you know, the fact he had to start from the back of the grid and all of a sudden people cared about MotoGP again. It's like, oh, hey, guys, where have you been the last three years? Um, but no. Um, despite that, Valentino Rossi was directly involved in a chase from the back to try and win the title. So, of course, people were going to be... I remember 
the build-up to that race, you saw a bunch of people that are never normally there for MotoGP races all just rock up there, like, ex- expecting something magical to happen. Like, with, like I think Martin Rundle was down there. I remember Mark Webber being down there. Who, you know, both of them were huge Valentino Rossi marks. Yeah, MotoGP um, was back-page news back in late 2015, which I, I, yes. which I hadn't seen in my time watching. I'd never seen MotoGP make it into the public sporting consciousness that much beyond its own sport. It transcended MotoGP that year. Yes, it did. Um, it absolutely did. And it got everybody in motorsport talking after Sepang. I remember people like Jason Plato was coming out here, releasing like super zoomed in GIFs, trying to analyze this footage. People from all over the biking world was being asked for comments. I remember Michael Laverty saying, choke the Moto3 dudes out. They get involved in the title race. And I'm <laughs> like, wow, okay. Um, that's, a, that's a strong take there, Michael. A bad one, but a strong take nonetheless. But uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, it got everybody talking. It was it was MotoGP's magnum opus, so to speak. It was their Hollywood moment where they had something that transcended the sport because their 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 this greatest rider had all of a sudden been caught up in a enormous controversy to try and win a title, this his tenth title, yeah. the one he's been trying to get so hard. Yeah, the championship that he'd been craving since 2009 when he won his last one. Um, it was ex- extraordinary the way that season. I mean, that's that season the way it planned it panned out deserved a final round decider, and of course that was the season that brought us two of the best races we've ever seen at Misano and Phillip Island that year. Um, you know, Phillip Island for me, 2015 is probably the one race in MotoGP that would rival Estrello Six um, for, right. for just just everything from start to finish. The you know the uh, you know only headbutting a seagull. Um, to the the four the, the four way fight up the front between you know Rossi Lorenzo and Marquez Marquez's stunning final lap to win it um, beating Mark Marquez you know doffing up Valentino Rossi on the final lap which um, many people would argue that was the moment that cost Valentino the title uh, rather than Sepang the moment where you know beat him to the podium in Phillip Island which meant that Rossi had to race Marquez um, in Sepang rather than just follow him around and um, take the points because um, course Rossi lost three points to you know that day um, and. Really, the story of 2015 as it goes is Rossi versus Marquez, which in many ways is a disservice to the guy and actually ended up winning the title uh, in 2015. Um, and it, it gets forgotten in, in amongst the uh, the controversy of Rossi and the batshit conspiracy theories of what Mark Marquez was up to. Um, the Jorge Lorenzo really did produce a legendary ride to beat the Repsol Hondas that day to win the title. Indeed, uh, it's... It's easy to forget that Lorenzo was so brilliant at the end of that season, you know, winning seven races and then you know coming up strong at the end to to really to really bring it home. And Lorenzo had to hold off a rampant Marquez. And like, of course, conspiracy theories because Marquez never made a, his his usual case of lunging dive bomb. The response to that is he never had a chance to because Valencia is a very slow circuit. It's very one line everywhere. And there wasn't really any golden chances for him to do it out there because it's frigging hard to pass at Valencia for Christ's yeah, sake. And, and Lorenzo didn't give him a sniff. <laughs> no, Lorenzo did not did not give him a wheel. It was it was one of those things. Um, so yeah, like it, it's 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 easy to forget that that we had a fantastic fight for that last win for Lorenzo with Valentino Rossi basically in no man's land after making his way up to fourth place. 
and yeah, you, the, the, the way you slice it, it was it was incredibly impressive from Lorenzo, and it's a shame we often forget about that in the midst of conspiracy talk and Valentino Rossi missing out, basically. Mm, yeah, it was a shame that, in, in many ways, that season ended in acrimony um, because of what happened between Rossi and Marquez and the fact that the three Spaniards up on the podium, or two of the three Spaniards, because no one hates Danny Pedroza, um, were getting booed up on the podium, even though Lorenzo had just produced a, an astonishing piece of, of skill and riding to and a nerve to hold off the Hondas. Because, of course, if um, both Marquez and Pedroza had passed Lorenzo on that last lap, then Rossi would have won the title with fourth place. Because um, that would have been enough with Lorenzo outside of the top two. Um, but as it was, Lorenzo uh, clinched the title that year. Um, our number two on the list is also a championship decider from Valencia, um, which I guess would leave you thinking, which championship decider of Valencia could possibly rival um, the two MotoGP ones we've mentioned in 2006 and 2015. Uh, well, we're heading to Moto3 for this one, and I was really, really tempted to put this at number one because I absolutely love this race, uh, and I love this season. I mean, this is one of my favourite races of all time um, and favourite seasons. The three-way winner-takes-all decider of Valencia in Moto3 in 2013. Um, where, absolutely. And, and to put this into perspective, Dre, this was how incredible this race was at the outset and how close the championship had become. Luis Salom, Maverick Vinales, and Alex Rins, all three of them went to the final race of Valencia, knowing that a win would win them the title. It was a literal winner-takes-all between the three of them. Yeah, you will never see that again in Moto3. The, the, the three guys, all pretty much on the same level, all beating the crap out of each other, all of them with a, with a real chance, knowing that if they, were, if they controlled their own destiny, that they won, they'd be champion. And... Uh, yeah, um, an unbelievably tense finale going into the first real Moto3 freeway title fight. It, it was, and it, it kind of, in many ways, upstaged the um, the MotoGP one later that day between Marquez and Lorenzo. I think more people were sort of focused on Moto3 because they were that excited for that race. Um, because the, these three Spanish kids had dominated all year. Um, they'd won every race between them, with the exception of um, Alex Marquez, who won the race before that at Mategi. And that was really what set the stage for this, because it appeared with uh, a couple of races to go that it was becoming a straight fight between uh, Alex Rins and Luis Salon, uh, who were the top two in the championship. But then both of them went on to crash out of the race at Mategi. Um, Salon was taken out, ironically, by Maverick's cousin, Isaac Vinales. Um, and then Alex Rins, Alex Rins just crashed out on his own. Um, later on in that race, which meant that Maverick Vinales from 22 points behind with two races to go, even though he was beaten to the win by Marquez that day, suddenly catapulted himself right into the middle of the championship fight, um, which meant that the three of them were split by five points going into the final round. And unfortunately for Louis Salom, the late Louis Salom, um, he would crash out of that leading group because, of course, <laughs> that race in Valencia became a fight for the win between the three title contenders because they were the three riders who were dominated all year. Salon would crash out, which left Dre with a straight fight to the finish between Rince and Vinales for the World Championship. Um, and, mm -hmm. and Maverick Vinales, for context, only won two races all year prior to this um, yep. because he'd so often been beaten on a final lap by Alex Rince. And many people were questioning Vinales and his temperament around that time because he would be a bit flaky and he would often lose his, his nerve under pressure and Rince would beat him. And I just go as far as to say as that final lap where Maverick Vinales conquered his demons and beat Alex Rins to win the championship and the race that day, I go as far as to say that that one lap pretty much changed Maverick's career. Yeah, I'd say so. We, we, we took him a lot more seriously then. And yeah, his temperament changed. Like he, he would go on to be a ridiculously good Moto2 rider yeah, We were saying well. the kind I mean, of things then about Maverick that we still say about Fanati even now. 
Exactly. It's we all questioned, you know, Maverick's bottle, his temperament, until that race. Until that race, a lot of the question marks came to an end after that one. He'd proven that, you know, in 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 the most critical race of his career, he delivered, stepped up, and won, and you know, became became world champion. And yeah, it's it's, a, it's an easy one to forget, but now we realise, yeah, this guy's a bit special. But you know, the talent had always been there. It, it was just we just needed proof that you know he could really go out there and you know win 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 the high pressure showdowns, and he did exactly that. Mm, yeah, he did, and um, and this is why I had this as high as number two um, because this one literally did go down to the final corner of the final lap, where um, as I mentioned, I mean, I I was watching this at home and and I was cheering Maverick on. I wanted Maverick to win this title. Um, so badly, um, and he he was the guy that everyone was questioning. He was the guy that was almost being dismissed because it was Solomon Rins who I think Solomon had won seven races that year. Rins had won six, and Maverick had only won the two um, going into this final round. But Maverick had been on the podium every single race bar about I think one that year. Um, he'd been, yeah, he'd been so consistent that was what kept him in the hunt. And um, yeah, Rins goes past Maverick at the start of the final lap, and and I was sort of thinking, oh, here we go. Rins does it again on the final lap and just does Maverick up. Um, but yet Maverick would force his way through down at that tight hairpin out the back at turn eight. Um, and as soon as he got through at that point, I was thinking, Maverick's got this. There's no a real overtaking spot around the rest of this final lap. Maverick might have this. And Rins, as he as any rider would, goes for the dive bomb at the final corner to try and win the title. Gets up the inside of Maverick, but Maverick holds his nerve, ducks back underneath him on the exit of the corner and outdrags into the line um, to win the championship. And I just love the... The, the contrast of Maverick Mignales, who, as soon as he crosses the line, has that sort of mixture of bursting into tears, but also sort of bashing his head with his fingers as if to say, I did it, I held my nerve, I actually held my nerve under the pressure of it all. <laughs> uh, and, Ale- and Alex Rins, who's just been beaten to a world title, and to this day, still hasn't won a world title, of course, rides past Maverick Mignales and just sort of turns around him and applauds him, which I thought was brilliant, just a sort of measure of the man, a measure of Alex Rins, who was still only a teenager by that point, and they'd just lost the world title, still had the presence of mind, even then, just to turn around and just applaud the man who'd beaten him um, to the world title. Um, it was just a brilliant, brilliant spectacle um, between the three Spaniards. And, um, yeah, it's, of course, tinged with sadness, because, of course, what's happened since, and, of course, we've lost Louis Salon um, since that point, and he never went on to win a world title. That was as close as he ever came. Um, uh, but just a brilliant, brilliant race. And as I say, it was so important to Maverick Vinales' career because he basically was a man transformed, a pretty much a boy becoming a man that day um, to win that Moto3 uh, world title. Um, it kind of begs the question, what on earth beats that to number one um, in our list? And those of you that only ever really follow MotoGP might not have seen this race. Um, but if you if you haven't, um, we could not urge you strongly enough to go and watch this race after you finish listening to this, um, because we're heading back to 2011 and Brands Hatch for the British Superbike Championship decider, um, and Dre really came down to one lap, and and to this day the greatest lap of racing I have ever seen in any motor race. Yeah, this was unbelievable. This was ridiculous. It was there's no superlatives that fit in really to describe just how bonkers this race was and just how two guys left everything. And I do mean everything on the line to win the BSB title. And it was, and of course, if those guys that know this show, well, we are of course talking about brands hatch 2011 and that fight between Tommy Hill and John Hopkins. And, uh, Oh Lord. Uh, it's a bit special. Yeah, they 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 swap places. I think at least five times on the final lap of the race, um, where 
for context, this was perhaps the, the greatest moment, the finest hour of the showdown. Um, of course, it was the showdown that created this this scenario um, where, right. had this season gone to normal points, Shane Byrne would have won the title and neither of these two would have been fighting for the title that day. Uh, Shaky would have won it up ahead of them. Um, and it's... What what amazes me even now about this race, it's that I've never seen a race like this where the TV director has flat out not even bothered to show the race winner crossing the line because there's something more important going on behind it. Because because about four seconds back down the road, these two are fighting for the championship, heading to the line. So we like Shaky Burn wins that race, but if you watch it on TV, you wouldn't have actually noticed him. Um, because he was way up the road. Um, but yeah, Tommy Hill and John Hopkins go into this final race, I think two points apart uh, in the championship with Tommy Hill ahead, uh, which basically meant that with the two battling for second place, whoever finished ahead um, would win the title. Um, and in the end rate, they swap places four or five times across that final lap. And as you say, they're just leaving everything on the line, just just throwing everything at it, knowing that this is it. This is the championship in this next three miles, and they're going to leave everything out there. Yeah, pretty much. And we, we saw it. We saw just how far these guys are willing to go. Passing attempts that you, you would never normally see. Look at me, people looking for half a yard and an elbow out anywhere they could to try and to try and come through on this situation because they knew it was a winner take all showdown um, to basically win the championship. And like again, nobody cared about Shaky winning the race. No. Not a single soul. Sorry, Shaky. This wasn't about you, my friend. Mm. Um, but uh yeah, it was an unbelievable, uh, unbelievable race, an unbelievable final lap, and it all came down to the last corner and the fact that Tommy Hill had won the championship by six thousandths yeah. of a second um, over the line. It, you will never see anything like that again. It is, and uh, you. By the way, you, you can find that YouTube. I've literally just as I watch this, just, just literally, yes. literally do a YouTube search, Hill Hopkins, and it's the first thing that comes up. Um, yes. So, so, so go and watch it. It is incredible. You have no excuse. Yeah. Um, we'll 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 post it on the Motorsport One One Twitter account once we once the show goes up, so you can find it. Yes. Um, but it, it, it's a fantastic, fantastic race. And and, and what what almost gets forgotten in all this, Dre, is Tommy Hill almost blows it. Like right on the final two meters, because of course there's, there are two lines at the at the end of the race. There's the finish line, and then there's another white line about five meters before it. Tommy Hill sits up as he goes over that line and very nearly blows it. That's not the finish line, yeah. Tommy. Oh, <laughs> like Tom, Tommy Hill sits up thinking the race is over and probably just glad it's over because he's pretty much left everything out there. Just he's poured his heart out over the last lap and. Hopkins then zooms up alongside him and very nearly beats him to the line. And and poor John Hopkins, of course, he wouldn't never he'd never win the British Superbike title and he'd have injuries that would um ravage his career for ever since then. Um but yeah, Tommy Hill in the end, it would come down to clearways on the final lap where Hopkins just goes for the hill maybe, just sends it up the inside of, Hop- of of Tommy Hill into the final corner. And um Tommy Hill pretty much does what Navi Brunales did to Alex Rins in that Valencia race, just ducks back underneath him and then out drags him to the line. Um until of course he sits up and nearly lets Tom- uh, John Hopkins back in. Um but it is an extraordinary moment. Just just a just a brilliant, brilliant race. Still to this point, as I say, the best lap of racing I've ever seen um in any form of motor sport um just incredible racing between the two and as, as dre mentioned the very fact that it was decided in the end by six thousandths of a second um for the title uh, in favor of tommy hill makes this the the greatest title decided i think we've seen uh, in motorcycle sport it, it was an incredible incredible finale um before we go we've got time to look ahead to this weekend it's kind of neat that we're talking bsb because of course we have another decided this weekend and um Dre, I think we're probably clutching at straws if we're expecting anything to match 2011 and Brands between Hill and Hopkins. Uh, yeah, I think if much. anything, 
Um, I think we're, we're doing well if he even makes it to race three, aren't we? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think Haslam has got one hand on this, and I think all Haslam really needs to do is just don't do anything crazy. Just race his race. And he, the fact he's got almost... Uh, he has got a, a race in hand here. He can win it um, after race two, as long as he doesn't give up too many points to Shaky and you know, to Brooks behind him. Um, I, I think Haslam will be fine. Kawasaki's have gone well around here this year. and They may not necessarily have the ultimate pace to win, because I know Brooks is going to frigging go for it this weekend because he's got pace around here in spades. We saw it and in in the regular season round earlier on where it was him and it was him and Shaky that were gone basically. Mm. Um, but again, mm. we've, we've seen where Mossy has gone very well in the indie layout as well. So yeah, it's it, 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 it's a lot that's on that's at stake here. Obviously, uh, I'm sure, and I know Haslam knows that, and I don't think he's going to approach it any differently. I think he's just going to take his time and see what he can do. Um, and again, as long as he doesn't do anything too crazy, he should be fine. Yeah, he's just got to hold his nerve, hasn't he? Uh, Leon Haslam, and he should have it. I mean, three <laughs> podiums will be enough uh, in theory. He can afford, even if Shaky and Josh Brooks are ahead of him, Haslam could afford to finish third in both uh, in all three races, should I say, and still win the title. So as long as he doesn't do anything silly, this should be Haslam's title um, in brands uh, in the BSB decided this weekend. But of course, it is a triple header, and rain could well uh, affect things across the weekend uh, race one will probably be taking place around the time you're listening to this if you're listening to this at the point of release on uh, saturday afternoon um races two and three uh, on sunday where the title may well still be on the line um of course there is a championship potentially to be crowned uh, and to be decided this weekend at mategi as well drake's of course john mir has his first shot at the moto three title um, even though he has a sixth place grid penalty hanging over his head from the last round. Of oh, no. Yeah, I wonder how much that's going to inconvenience him. Um, but uh, Joan Mir, essentially a podium or a top two finish is enough. Um, and he kind of think that's well within Joan Mir's reach. You'd think um, it, it's... He's been so good, pretty much, like, the, the entire season. And he, I don't think he's had a, a, a round where he's dropped out of the top ten. Um, so, it's... He should. He should be fine. And I, I, I don't think anything will happen that, you know, that, that could easily just say, yeah, you know, like, Mir will screw this up. But if he if he races his race, he doesn't get elbow barred, he doesn't have Fanati come over the top of him, um, he should be in the he should be in the conversation and he should be fine. Yeah. Um, even if not, I mean, what's the rush? Yeah, I was going to say, part of, part of me hopes he, he waits another week because, um, you know, next week's episode 35 and John Mir's bike number is 36. Uh, ah, so part of me wants John Mir to wait until the week after in uh, in Australia to clinch it so we can talk about it on episode 36. And, uh, yeah, King, King <laughs> will have a lot of fun making that thumbnail up. Um, but, um, but, yeah, um, two other classes, of course, that we're taking this weekend. Championship's not on the line just yet. Uh, in Moto2 or MotoGP. Um, but what's key this weekend, Dre, is that it's pretty much forecast to be wet all weekend uh, at Mategi, um, which means that we could yet have another twist in the tail between Mark Marquez and Andrea Dovizioso. We very well could. Um, Mark there's, Marquez there's, binned there's, it today in the wet. Of course. Um, so, you know, that opens the door a little bit as well. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um Again, is this, this is this a must win for Ducati? Pardon? Is this a must win for Ducati? Yes. 
I think every round is a must win for Jakey from here and then because Marquez is the guy right now. Like, like for all the talk about you know the way this unpredictable the season has been, Marquez has been on another level the last five or six rounds, and he's looking like the complete all round package right now. And again, fastest in FP1 in the wet. Again, a round where Jakey are meant to be yeah. quite strong By a round. Mile as well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Marquez is in the conversation, wet or dry. So. Again, it's it's going to come down to a, to you know Ducati just getting whatever they can get out of this, but they get they have to start beating Marquez like now, otherwise, like the next two rounds, um, you know, with, with Philip Island, Marquez loves Philip Island. He's he is super strong around there, and you know Sepang, another strong Honda round. Pedrosa goes very well around Sepang. Um, that could be a problem. He could, he could be a very nice spoiler for Marquez in this as well. So. Yeah, the way it's going right now, like they've got to start taking points out of Marquez and quickly. Because if he, if he gets that one race buffer, it's going to be all that more damaging with only a handful of rounds to go. Mm, it is. And um, we haven't even mentioned the, the third rider in this three-way championship fight, if it is still a three-way fight. Um, but part of me worries, Dre, that Maverick Vinales and Yamaha's goose may well be cooked this weekend. Because not only is Maverick not the same level of wet-weather rider as Mark or Dovi, but that Yamaha just doesn't like the wet-weather either. No, it's, it's, it's not been good in wet conditions all year long. Only Valentino Rossi has had really any sort of influence on that this season. And that's only really because he's so freaking good at Aston. Really, more than anything else, Petrucci was, was more, had more than a chance of winning that one um, when that rolled around um, earlier this season. But yeah, Maverick in particular has struggled at wet races all season long. And again, like Marquez and Dovi have gotten better at this as time has gone on. And they'll be thinking championship. And a Maverick, Maverick is not going to pull the pin and be aggressive because he hasn't got a choice here. Mm. If he, if, mm. he knows one more crash and he's pretty much done season-wise. So he's got to be very careful about this, um, to say the least. And yeah, like, I think Yamaha is, is struggling at the moment. They really are struggling in wet conditions and Maverick's not been particularly strong out there. So, yeah, I, I think this, this could be a damage limitation round for Maverick in a round where damage limitation is no longer good enough. No, it's, uh, whatever happens, it's likely to be a dramatic weekend out in Japan. And this weekend, as the uh, three flyaways get underway, and as I say, rain is forecast throughout at Mategi this weekend. Whatever happens, we will be back next week for episode 35. Um, we're not going to devote it to Cal Crutchlow, don't worry. Um, we're going to be back next back. week for episode 35 to talk all about MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3. And in uh, Japan, will we have a new Moto3 champion to talk about? We will have a new British Superbike champion to talk about next week. Question is, will it be Haslam, will it be Byrne, or will it be Brooks? Um, as I say, join us next week for episode 35 to talk all about it. We also have episode 108 uh, of Motorsport 101 to talk about next week, um, which falls in the middle of another um, dead week, I suppose, Dre, doesn't it, um, for, for motorsport? Although, um, there is a brand new IndyCar calendar out, um, which I know has got many people talking based on one of the glaring omissions from the list. Rest in peace, Watkins Glen, 2016 to 2017. <laughs> we, hard, we hardly knew ye. As, yeah, IndyCars, they, they, they released their calendar for next year yesterday, and uh, it's pretty much identical to last year's, except for, oh, there's no Watkins Glen at the penultimate round anymore. We're going back to Portland. Um, we're going back to the cart days of 96. Fun times, yo. But um, that, and I think inevitably, I think we're going to make this the calendar special. Oh, of course, yeah. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're, uh, shout out to James Callan Dennis, um, who sent us the, the one of our strongest ever ask me questions about making our own custom calendar. I think that'll be the one where we're gonna beat our heads together and work that out, basically. So um, that's gonna be fun. Um, we're going to inevitably kill each other trying to decide, uh, um, like how badly do we not want Monza on this calendar? <laughs> Basically, yeah. how bad are but, you uh, gonna cater for Imola? Uh, just, just a tad, just, just a little bit, you know. Um, you know that, that, that was that's never going to happen, not in a million years. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, I was listening to this week's show. If you haven't heard it, motorsport101.net to find it, uh, where they talk yes. about the uh, the potential of a Dutch Grand Prix and a street race in Amsterdam. Um, and, and King's mentioning the fact that there are only really two circuits that could potentially host a. Um, Formula One Grand Prix and he says well the cost is a circuit at Assen and I'm straight away as I'm editing this thinking don't you dare touch Assen no Assen is sacred Leave you, you are track. not touching Assen you touch Assen and you fight me no <laughs> never um, can't do that yeah so uh, yeah check out that out next week episode 108 of Motorsport 101 as I say if you haven't listened to it already episode 107 is available to listen to uh, right now um, massive thanks to Andrew Harrison for joining me on this dead week of motorcycle racing where we still filled a near two hour show uh, because that's what we do around here um, and uh, yeah we'll be back next week episode 108 of Motorsport 101 and episode 35 of Bike Live is next week where we look back on Mategi and Brands the BSB Decider we'll see you next week bye for now